This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Gina Cadlick, author of the book Heretic, a memoir. Her book was just published this week and it is a deeply intimate memoir of her life growing up in and leaving evangelicalism, discovering her queerness, and much more. We talk about the Midwest, about developing spiritual practices after religion, about comics, It's a very laid-back and meandering conversation that I hope you will enjoy as much as I did. You can find Heretic at your local bookstore, and if you want to support this show, you can do so by using the bookshop.org or Amazon links in the show notes. You can also support the show via subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post. Head on over to postevangelicalpost.com slash about to learn about the different support offerings over there. I offer a number of tiers uh, at 4 6 or $8 a month. You choose, and you get the same benefits at that rate, which includes ad-free podcast feeds, Discord access, and some other things that I'm working on as well, as well as subscriber-exclusive things here and there. Please head on over there to check out what I have to offer, uh, and you can also subscribe for free. So feel free to subscribe over there to keep up to date with the authors and other folks that I'm interviewing and everything else that that I'm working on, head on over again to postevangelicalpost.com. Exvangelical is a production of the Postevangelical Post LLC, and this interview was edited by Podcat Audio. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Gina Cadlick, author of the new book, Heretic, a memoir. Gina has also written for Elle, Nylon, and many other outlets. Gina, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here, Blake. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I, I really enjoyed reading through your book. Thank you for sending it to me. And I have to admit, I'm excited to talk to a fellow Midwesterner, and I thought mm-hmm. we could start there. I'm from the Indiana, Illinois. Uh, I was I lived in Indiana, central Indiana until high school, then moved to the Chicago suburbs. But I was mm-hmm. excited because the, actually the Midwest is far more diverse than a lot of people think. Extremely. <laughs> um, yes. But I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up and what your slice of the Midwest was like. Yeah, I grew up in rural Iowa, and then we moved to a very small town in Wisconsin when I was in middle school. And so my experience of the Midwest is very much a combination of the Plains states and the Great Lakes states, and kind of that mix of 
you know, rural farm, like living 20 minutes, like living a 20 minute drive from a small town of 1800 people where there are no stoplights and there's one gas station. And so your gas station allegiance has to be to the quick trip because like the closest Casey's is an hour away. <laughs> Iowans are religious about their gas stations. It's like asking what your church denomination is. <laughs> like it's very particular. And I, you know, today I get in not like, not like tiffs, but kind of cute little tiffs with other folks out here who are Midwestern and especially other Iowans because, um, and I live in Brooklyn now because they'll be like, well, Casey's is obviously superior because they have really good breakfast pizza, like really good you know, gas station <laughs> breakfast pizza. And I'm like, the closest Casey's was really far. Like we, you know, um, so my experience of the Midwest is so much one of driving and so mm-hmm. much one of driving hours and hours to see anyone we were related to just across the countryside, you know, very stereotypically going you know, just on these back country roads, like through cornfields. And it's it's so strange out here because I think my growing up in some ways now feels very stereotypical when I describe it, but that's what it was, you know, like part of the movie Twister was filmed around where I grew up, like with those vast expansive shots of, you know, flat cornfields and like very kitschy little farms. But yeah, then when we moved to Wisconsin, it was a very different kind of you know the more Great Lakes Midwest, it was more like lots more bluffs, lots more forests, lots more, mm-hmm. and lots more like outdoorsy type activities being a very everyday way of life, like going hiking or a lot of like water, <laughs> not kicky water sports, but like you know, like water sports, <laughs> like like folks, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, <laughs> like going, you know, like, like folks who had lake homes and folks right. who did like boating or they, you know, went up north to like go camping on Lake Superior, like that kind of thing was a much more like part of even you know, working class people did that. Like it was mm-hmm. very, very common. So so yeah, my experience of of the Midwest, I think, was very I, I think I thought it was very universal when I was growing up, but it that definitely took meeting people from other parts, like you're saying, like, you know, Rust Belt, like Indiana, Ohio, like, you know, who had very different, like, relationships to the land and industry. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. what was it like for you? Like, how do those, when I describe those things, like, was that similar or different? Yeah, for me, I would say the thing that is very similar is being in the car a lot. So mm-hmm. my my family was the family that moved away from mm. their from their their hometown. So my parents are high school sweethearts and so they're both from the same like there were basically two or three like small towns that that you know fed into a high school and everything like that. And I was from this this uh, small town called Crawfordsville which had 16,000 people in it. It makes its mark by being well it's where Will Shorts is from. If you're a crossword puzzle nerd, no, I don't know who that <laughs> um, is. Uh, Will Shorts is the New York Times crossword puzzle puzzle editor. Got it. Um, okay. Ben Hur was written there, and Wabash College, which is one of the last remaining all male colleges in the country, is there. But to my family, to my extended family, who we would go down and visit a lot, it would be a two or three hour drive to get there. I was a city kid because <laughs> mm-hmm. literally a city kid to them because uh, even though for most of my time there up until I was 11 we lived outside of the town area and we were in a bigger bigger community yeah. <laughs> and yeah. actually the the interesting thing there was central indiana like i i um 
maybe to some people I have an accent. To me, I feel like I I have a pretty, you know, mid-Atlantic, you know, or what you, whatever. You don't sound like you have an accent to me. <laughs> I don't, I, it, I don't hear yeah, it. Yeah, but my family is from Kentuckiana. My extended family is mm-hmm. like that area is actually mm-hmm. called, Southern Indiana is called Kentuckiana. And I actually saw a TikTok recently that showed that the cultural Midwest is basically like it, it made a little line across Southern Ohio, Southern Ohio, Southern uh, Indiana and Southern Illinois and mm-hmm. said, and said that below that line is the beginning of the South. And that I feel is like, I have, you know, my relatives identify as Southern, even though, mm-hmm. even though, and the reason I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a, the reason I just say my relatives instead of saying the actual relation is just you know, that's private info, but they, but they think of themselves as Southern, yeah. you know, and identify, even though they are from Indiana and like mm-hmm. they, the Indiana fought with the union. Mm-hmm. Like, no, listen, uh, I feel that like I, my mom, I have family, like, like, and again, family complicated word, like I, they're relatives, they're distant relatives, whatever, you know, but they're from Missouri and like, they're from, like, they're from Ozark country. That mm-hmm. is not, culturally speaking, like Southern Missouri, like is the South, like it is much more. And if you don't want to call it the South, it, well, it's much more akin to the South than it is to like Iowa than Minnesota like it's it's its own thing like it is mm. you know it's it's very different from northern Missouri like and even the fact like in my family we say Missouri like you know right. that's not like out here I'll like switch I'll I try to remember to switch and I'm like Missouri like is how people say it out here but like we don't say that at home like I don't know there's different like little ticks with language right. and like different right. cultural identifications and yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, if if I go down, uh, you know, if I would go down, uh, you know, to visit family, sometimes even as a kid, I would say things like "yonder" or "reckon." Mm. You know, like oh my God. if I was there, and yes. it would just, and then it would just, uh, you know, become a just. It it would be something that you would sort of. It's not not the same degree of code switching, but it's a way in which you you sort of mirror like Mm -hmm. the language you hear (laughs) yeah absolutely and like we weren't that you know like the language like that like that kind of classically southern like yonder and record like that didn't make it up like quite up to my to my like immediate family but you know we definitely we definitely say y'all and and such and which I also just think is a very useful like inclusive pronoun to use yeah (laughs) Um, yeah but but it's so funny because like folks I don't know I I know I I really super generalize when I say folks out here but my experience of living in Boston and New York for like 10 plus years now and like being around academic and media and literary circles out here has been so specifically like classed in a way and a lot of folks have very specific opinions about what the Midwest is and is not and they're like you can't say y'all that's a southern thing and I'm like y'all like y'all don't understand how much like cultural slippage there is between the midwest and the south and like there is a lot like they are very distinct but there is a lot of like there's a lot of food there's a lot of language like that is very part of both and right right to your point about like the Ohio like Indiana Kentucky border like culturally is not a border like yeah yeah and it's i mean it's fascinating and there's and i mean like i i think even within commerce like some of the i you know some people live in indiana but work in louisville and things like that and those borders i mean those borders are sort of similar to 
you know, like New York and New Jersey or some, right. or another another sort of border type place. I know a lot of times folks like us may use liminal in a different type of meaning, mm-hmm. but like those sort of porous things, yeah. they exist. And like, I think, I think in large part, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really able to articulate this until, you know, within the last couple of years, but much of, much of that is, I think, because there's not much in the way of a uh, history of like, at least colonial history, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like they, they, the settlers really tried to obliterate or erase the indigenous history that is mm-hmm. local to these places. But like mm-hmm. this, the settler, you know, these Indiana didn't become a state until the early 19th century, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, you're not dealing with that level of history as, as a feeling, mm-hmm. as something you experience, I guess. And I think that's, that's sort of endemic to much of the Midwest, you mm-hmm. know, is this, but I'm I'm really happy to see the Midwest being critically engaged in books. You know, Megan O'Giblin has a has a book, Interior States. Your book engages it in a really cool way. And you talk about how to sort of segue in, into the next thing about how church really is, you know, as certainly up until we're I'm I think we're around the same age. I'm in my late 30s. Certainly was like a very significant part of being part of a community is being Mm -hmm. part of a faith community so uh, what did that look like in your in your town and Mm -hmm. how did how did you experience that within your family unit yeah I think that it I I do kind of want to bring it back to to one point you made about how you were from the big city even though you were from I mean I'm assuming (laughs) like prior to this like Chicago suburb move it was being around this town of like 16,000 or so because that was about the size of the town that and this is relevant uh, to the question about church because that was about the size of the town that we moved to in Wisconsin so I moved so my sister and I I'm I have my one sister I'm older she's younger her name is Joe she plays a pretty big part in the book and joe and i our parents were interestingly from bigger cities in iowa but Mm. then and joe and i were born in bigger cities in iowa but then in order to raise us my folks like who my mom not country at all my dad did grow up like helping on his grandparents farm they moved like way the fuck out <laughs> to like the <laughs> middle of nowhere, which I find very interesting instead of staying like in Cedar Rapids, like in close proximity to our extended family networks. You know, they really like booked it out and like went mm. to these small towns. And so, you know, in Iowa, there were very, very few like church options because we were in such a small town. Um, and like living so far outside of this really small town. Sorry, it's like the sirens, the wildlife of New York it's, in the background. It's, it's um, yeah, exactly. And so we went to these like larger evangelical churches, apparently when my sister and I were like very young, like babies in, you know, Davenport and Waterloo and such. But once you got to this tiny town of like 1800 people, those, you know, church rock band 
like that doesn't exist. It's much more traditional old school denominations and whatnot. And so we went to this very, um, you know, traditional like Dutch reformed country church where I, which is where I first got like a really strong liturgical foundation and like all the hymns and the apostles creed and all of that kind of stuff just like got really drilled into me very, very young. And, but then culturally, because my mom had been so invested in these big evangelical churches when my parents lived in cities we still had the cultural like burgeoning Christian rock music right like I remember listening to DC talk and the cry and third day's first album in the car and all of that stuff and then once we moved to Wisconsin when I was in middle school you know we thought it was this huge city 16,000 people or so around there because there was a Walmart and there was a McDonald's and like you know there were these basic kind of like basic amenities but they also had more options when it came to evangelical churches so we went to an alliance church and then we're part of a church plant and then, you know, just kind of had a multiple, a multitude of different evangelical experiences over the next few years there where I got exposed to multiple different kinds of, you know, church structures, ideas. Um, I would later come to understand that my mom sort of toggled between Calvinism and Arminianism with great ease, Mm. (laughs) which uh, was not pointed out to me until I was dating (laughs) my ex-husband, who was a very strict Calvinist. And he was like, some of your ideas are Calvinist and some of them are Arminian. And this is a problem. And I was like, (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) So, you know, because we were, we were just kind of like floating between. um, Sure. These different, you know, like churches that on the, uh, on the, what's the phrase to use here? Like on the surface, we're all just calling themselves Bible believing and Mm -hmm. had contemporary music and had all the same kinds of groups. And so the theology that they were actually founded on was much more obscured to the everyday attendee, which we were. So that's my very roundabout answer to your question. Yeah. Was that those types of things? The things that they obscured were were they things? Was it because they were they were left intentionally ambiguous, or because the or because the leadership wasn't specifically? I guess maybe I'm maybe I'm sort of sidetracked by the Calvinist Arminian thing. <laughs> I I grew up in I grew up at United Methodist Church and then went to a Wesleyan college, which is a more conservative branch yeah. now of the sort of holiness movement which is team arminian you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. Uh, as far as like yeah uh, you know and yeah. so it's always fascinating to me how that that's because it's not part of my experience it's not yeah i think that what it was specifically was that there were some ideas which which i had so like pro and which my mother had also like really drilled into me which i think really come through that i really like dig down on in the book like you know, I mean, to go into the, not to super go down tulip here, but like, you know, to get into like the depravity piece, for example, like, so I had like the Calvinist idea of total depravity. I was all in on that. I was like, yes, clearly total depravity, like no, you know, like unconditional grace. Yes. Done. But then I had this very, where actually my ex-husband and I, when we were dating, we almost broke up over predestination versus free will, which uh, in hindsight, I think is actually a very clear character issue that we should have broken up over. And because I was, that was where I broke down in my like purported Calvinist commitments. And I was very clearly team Arminian, like it's a free will situation, like, which is a very core component there. It's like, it's, it's free will. Jesus died for everybody. Like it's a matter of 
whether right. you opt in. And my ex-husband, among many other Calvinists I have known, not to pick on him specifically, you know, are very much, which is also where I think some of these Calvinist churches were kind of obscuring their messaging, right? Like this, because it's not really a sexy selling point is the whole predestination. And not only that, like, which that piece, they're a little more open with, right? The idea that like, well, you're like, God has already chosen you. You're a believer because God has chosen you. But then the idea of God's elect, that God has already chosen every, like the, which is the next piece of that in the logical thinking process like that God has already chosen everyone who will ever be saved and people who are not saved are actually not saved by God's design like that's a pretty bitter pill to swallow and it's just not one that I could ever get down with and yeah we had some pretty vicious fights over that and I almost broke up with him over it hindsight 2020 (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean Calvinism feels like theological like Stockholm syndrome (laughs) (laughs) You know, oh you're God. just, you're, <laughs> yes. you're just becoming, you're just becoming sympathetic to your captor at that point. And I mean, truly, truly. Yeah. But, the, but it's so interesting. Cause like, I didn't, I didn't like Calvinism, Arminianism. I did not know what those words were until I started dating my ex-husband who was a pastor's son. And like all of his best friends from high school went to Moody Bible and were like pastors in training. And so he was very into theology and explained what all this was to me. And I was like, oh, there's like a theory to what the pastors are doing. That was fascinating to me. That had never dawned on me that there was like a foundation to it, which felt so dumb and high or not to say that, but like, it just felt very short-sighted of me in hindsight. And, but that just really helped to kind of also crack open my understanding and my ability to appreciate like what was behind what I was learning. So on that note, like since, since that, I mean, I think that's, that's an element of, of like most people don't get, you know, the total package of evangelicalism, you know, they, they miss, they miss certain things, you know, or like whether you consider Pentecostal type services Mm -hmm. in line with evangelicals, which I by and large, by I sort of at this point do but mm-hmm. I mean I know that sort of historically that's not always been the case they they sort of had their own space in American religious history and stuff mm-hmm. nonetheless you know a lot of times we not everybody gets every single you know negative aspect or or positive or anything uh of the the broad evangelical experience so Calvinism and, and Arminianism that wasn't something that was highlighted or emphasized in in your churches what was as, at least for the way the way you share it, it wasn't something that was really addressed from from the pulpit explicitly. How did you relate and how did you feel and understand your faith like during those adolescent periods or any other periods that you that you recall in the book as mm. far as how you how you related to the idea of faith and what being a being faithful or being religious or being a Christian meant to you? I think the most important thing for me and that I imagine is true for a lot of other folks who grew up evangelical is that having faith and being religious were always stressed as two very different things to me. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. and I always understood them to be very discreet. And I always understood that I was a very faithful person and that I had a very strong faith in Jesus, but that I didn't want to be, I wasn't religious and I didn't want to be religious because to me, it was stressed so strongly from like pretty much every church we went to and also by my mother that being religious was going through the motions and it was going doing all the actions but without any personal application 
And I was like, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's the most important thing. And I go to church because I have a relationship with Jesus. And also because my mom makes me, but, like, <laughs> but, 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 you know, I liked going, I, li- I, I was that kid who liked going to church. I right. loved worship. I loved Sunday. I loved school. I loved school period. Sunday school was just a different kind of school that I could be good at. Like, you know what right, I mean? Right, right, so right. like, I was really, I was really into it. And I felt like I had a really personal relationship with God, which I also like talk about in the book. Like I, you know, I don't, it's really, I think it's really hard for me sometimes in evangelical circles. Cause I don't like, I just had a lot of really uncanny. I think what some people might call like supernatural experiences as a child and also as an adolescent mm-hmm. and just a lot of I don't know. I just always felt really tapped into something other than myself, whether that's God, like the Christian God or Jesus, who knows? But like, I always felt like when I was talking to Jesus, I like, I heard someone talking back and it, and I take that really seriously still. And it felt, so when I ultimately left, it felt like such a loss of a relationship because I was like, yes, I talked to God and he also talks to me. Like I was that person who was just all in, Yeah, you know? So yeah. 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 Actually, I, I, if you're up for it, I would, this is certainly jumping ahead in your story. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually think that's a great thing to talk about because I do, you know, a lot of, especially spaces that are primarily online, they can end up becoming reductive or, Mm -hmm. or the thing about the thing about online spaces is, is they're presented as communities or which they are, they have community elements, but a lot of media scholars call them things that I, I, I'm starting to use more often, like the term network publics. Mm. (laughs) So like, you know, when you, so these are public, they can be multiple simultaneous audiences that you're talking to. And so to your point, like sometimes people that leave these, these spaces and adopt a completely materialist view to use a really philosophical language about it and don't substitute or develop any spiritual practices Mm -hmm. that alienates others that maintain that. Mm -hmm. So your book is actually really, I, I think a great example of the way in which you talk about developing to, to use your language, like even maybe do you feel like you might be more religious and less faithful now <laughs> or like a way in which you mm. you engage the you engage a different type of religious or spiritual practice in order to invoke or or tap into the same sort of thing that you feel yeah you on it uh, yeah absolutely and i will say i've really come around on the word religion <laughs> like um i in terms of like what it I, I find the resistance to it in evangelicalism ironic because obviously a lot of those folks are profoundly religious and also profoundly faithful and those, mm-hmm. they do not negate each other. And yeah, I think that these days I would definitely call myself spiritual, but I also am someone who is a highly, just like by my, by temperament, honestly, like just how I live my life. I'm a very like organized, ritualized person. So I do spark to a lot of practices that have those more ritualized components to them, which I think would from the outside look very religious to a lot of people, even if it's not necessarily like organized religion, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would be comfortable saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, 
I, I wasn't trying to shoehorn you into a particular thing you didn't want to. No, um, it's, it's an just... interesting thought exercise, though. Like, yeah, I, I think with those words, because they're so loaded in our culture. They're so oh, loaded. Like, oh, yeah. oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And and especially if you like as soon as you factor in any type of trauma, then it becomes mm-hmm. exceedingly complex and very, very idiosyncratic to a person. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it does make it does make those things difficult. To, mm-hmm. to talk about, which is why I'd still maintain that one-on-one conversations like this are one of the most valuable ways to, mm-hmm. to unearth what it means for you and in between, in this case, the two of us. So yeah. yeah. Would you call I, yourself any of those things these days or? I'm, I'm very, I'm sort of settling into being a sort of ag- agnostic type of Christian. I don't mm-hmm. know. To, to me, the 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 christian part actually references more the development of my ethics mm-hmm. than my meta, you know any metaphysical belief i have yeah. i feel like agnosticism is the most humble you can be <laughs> about about things beyond beyond the human human experience mm-hmm. so to me it's always leaving the door open to those types of things but then yeah. you know i had formative formative experiences and teachings that are rooted in Christianity for better Mm -hmm. or worse. Yeah. And, you know, it's not always, sometimes it also invokes a bit of pain, you know, like it touches a tender spot and sometimes I just have to be okay with that. And that's so, but, you know, uh, right now at this stage, I would say I'm agnostic, but, but accessing those like sort of spiritual you know, the thing I sort of felt that I touched in adolescence, that's not, that's not in the cards for me right now, if that makes sense, but I'm open to it for later. <laughs> it totally does. But I, I do love like that. Yeah. I mean, just leaving the door open, I feel is, yeah, I don't know. I think that's part of where I came at, like with the very end of talking with, like with the very end of the book and like how I kind of talk about where I'm at right now, because mm-hmm. I think that's part of, and also like with leaving and everything, it was just really hard to, even though I wanted nothing to do with anything remotely like metaphysical or whatnot for a really long time, it was, I just couldn't shut the door permanently just because of, you know, everything we grew up with. And because of those experiences, I was like, I I can't, I just, I would be turning my back on a certain kind of knowledge that I've already been exposed to and like something that I already know exists. And even if I don't want to pursue that specifically, like who am I to say there's not, I don't know, something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast. We talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. And the the interesting thing, the thing I really keyed into while I was reading your story through your book was was the way that you you had done this in a in a more individual manner that you Mm -hmm. because 
again, for better or worse, like much of much of evangelical identity, mm-hmm. even once you shed it, even even once you utilize a term like ex evangelical or ex evangelical to describe part of your experience. I will always maintain that it's not supposed to be as totalizing as evangelical was. Yeah. Um, but it once but it does describe a significant prior relationship you had. And one of the things that you lose is commu- is is your sense of community. What um, real or imagined? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's both. Yeah. You know, like I imagine community is like the Benedict Ander- Anderson term for <laughs> for the idea of nations <laughs> mm-hmm. and things like that, and the ideas of faith that connect you to. But your real community is the thing that is local to you and specific to your life. So I really enjoyed that and found a bit of encouragement from it that you continued to that you continued to really examine and pursue these things, even if it was for your own self-knowledge or for your own edification could you talk about that and how you sort of continued uh, not necessarily on a straightforward path but you eventually discovered things like tarot and other other elements of either occult or other types of spirituality yeah it's so nice to be talking to someone oh i can't do the you're midwestern you you know what nice like i can't say nice when i'm talking to a midwestern it's like that's it that's not <laughs> um but like it's just so good to talk to someone who i don't have to explain like how totalizing and to know that your audience also like how like people who understand how absolutely totalizing the loss of identity is when you walk away from the church like because I, I think that that I can't talk about, you know, that experience and without talking about how much it was driven by the fact that I, I felt like I was working from like ground foundation up, like basement up. Like I, you know, it wasn't just that I was also, it wasn't just that I left the church. Like I, you know, I left my marriage. I w- was coming out. I felt like in that loss of that relationship with Jesus and also a really wholesale loss of, in addition to that, like more broader, like I sense of identity as a Christian and in that part in the church, I also like really lost like my local and direct communities as well. I experienced mm-hmm. some pretty intense shunnings from my loved ones and I just, at the end of, like, I both knew that I had saved my life in doing that. And also I was like, who am I now? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know, which, which was a very staggering thing to sit with because I was 25 years old when uh, kind of the crux apex of all of this. And when I was also coming out of it, I, yeah, I was 25. And I mean, to be fair, I know that, you know, we can kind of be flipping and be like, what 25 year old knows who they are. But I also, I, I was really, like emerging from this rubble and had no clue where to start, like where to turn. I'd been raised in the church from infancy with the messaging that, you know, there's no good thing outside of God. There's no good thing outside of the self. I can't trust myself like because, Mm -hmm. and all of that incumbent, you know, messaging that everything has to be filtered through the Holy spirit. But what do I do if the Holy spirit's not there? So it just, for me, this the search, what what ended up being a very spiritual search was really just a search to figure out who the fuck I was and like what I wanted. 
And with tarot, it wasn't even so much that I considered, I, I wasn't using them for like even really divinatory things at all or in, in what I would consider now to be like more of a way that like psychics use the cards or whatnot. I was, I really just got a deck to be like, I need a way to think about, to understand what I'm thinking about. I need a way to process my, just like my feelings. I don't know how to journal without talking to God. I don't know how I needed a mediator. I felt like even though I, you know, was trying, I was trying to figure this out on my own and I felt like I needed a mediator in some Mm -hmm. ways. And so I, for a while there, like pulling tarot cards really helped to me to just kind of reflect back to myself, what I was thinking. And it helped me to start that process of journaling through and writing through the very basics of Sorry, I don't even know if I'm answering your question anymore. But no, like, no, no, you had, you are. You it, like you it helped are. it helped me to to start to just process what and articulate what I wanted outside of Christianity, what I wanted outside of a marriage, what I wanted outside of you know a sky god dictating everything to a pastor or a father or a husband, and what I wanted in a world where I wasn't inherently sinful. And it took, it was a really integral part of my healing process, ultimately. Like, I was doing that concurrently with talk therapy with a really rich, like, group of friends from graduate school who had rallied around me at that time with being on antidepressants for the first time in my life, which, like, whoo, that helped, you know, like, mm-hmm. majorly. So, you know, it wasn't just that. I was also integrating other tools, uh, which were so helpful and necessary for my for my healing you know, but, but tarot was really kind of the gateway into helping me figure out just who I was again. And I, I really kind of like ebbed and flowed with how much I used my deck, but it was definitely a foundational part to helping me on that just like road to recovery. And yeah. 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 yeah that's fascinating. And to, to build on what you were saying earlier about how you sort of felt like you were starting at at that sort of base level, which I think is I, I think is a is a common but no less difficult mm-hmm. experience um, that that people go through when they when they have left a high high demand religion mm-hmm. like white evangelicalism or similar evangelicalisms or other types of high demand religions. Mm -hmm. There was one quote that really stuck out to me in your book. You write that quote, self abnegation is the foundation of purity culture Mm -hmm. and evangelicalism itself. And I mean, this is a former insider show, (laughs) you know, so I'd love for you to talk about that more and and what you, what you wrote about there, because I think that really ties into a little bit later. You say, this is the in-game Christianity builds a prison inside a person. And I think that speaks to the type of the type of Christian messages that people internalize. Whether or not, you know, whether or not anyone else in their family knows that it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is a really a really strange thing to have happen. But it's something that you internalize and it made that line about the prison made me think about there's there's a line in the Sandman graphic novel or the Sandman series yeah. near 
I won't I won't say where it is because okay. there's a Netflix show now. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> it's also on my shelf. It's like it's I've I've had it on my shelf to read for years, and now there's a show, and I'm like, God damn, like. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's a it's a fantastic story for people who are like exploring you know new new mythologies. It essentially functions as a meta mythology. I could mm. totally nerd out on this. Um, <laughs> it's very very good for people that come from that leave a very strict black and white place and enter a world of color. There is a line in that story where someone, where someone says, I have no liking of prisons. Mm. Sometimes I think that we build them ourselves and back into them unaware. Mm. (laughs) And I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's, but that's the gist of it. And I know we, we jumped forward in your story, but I'm, I'm curious how, how you experienced that as you went through these significant life events, like getting getting married, then going through a separation and a divorce, what it what that sort of the sorts of things you had to unlearn that sort mm-hmm. of self abnegation. Yeah, that's such a thoughtful question. I also am totally like thrilled that we're kind of jumping all over the place because this is how <laughs> I talk anyway. So yeah. like, yes, we're just we're we're going for it. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, um, these are great. I I love it when conversations happen. Yeah, but well, um. So. Oh my God, the the self the self abnegation piece is I think so was such a thing when I was when I was working on this book because honestly the first few so it goes chronologically right but the later chapters get much more not in that they're non linear but in there that in they're a little more deconstructed as it were and they're a little more playful with structure and they're a little they just are a little I think they're a little more flowy and they're much more representative of how I think now. The first few chapters, which deal mostly with my childhood and adolescence and like describing being in the church and talking about purity culture and describing what that self-abnegation was like, those chapters were so hard to write in part because it meant like going back and being like, well, okay, how was I functioning? At, how did I have this self-conception of myself as being a good Christian and it really meant looking it in the face and being like, oh, <laughs> I was really good at denying myself because what being a good Christian was for a teenage girl was self-denial. It was entirely predicated on self-denial. Mm-hmm. And there, there is, because there's no even action involved necessarily. It's just it's based on what you don't do. It's based on how invisible and small you can make yourself. It's based on how little you tempt your brothers. It's based on how much you want to submit and be a carpet. It's it's based on this complete sublimation of self, the taking up of space, the honoring of will or desire, those things are sinful, right? Because it's like you have to want what God wants for you, but what God wants for you is to not... <laughs> Is, is to not actually want anything. Um, and <laughs> to, question, to question your desires at all times. <laughs> at all times. And and so like going back into that space was really, yeah, it was a time. In terms of how those things showed up with the with the marriage, I think, and the leaving, honestly, like, and I go into this in the book of fair a fair bit. Like, I think that the primary way that it immediately showed up was like, frankly, like in our sex life. And it was in how much it was really immediately and through no fault of his initially later on more so, but like, and you know, I just didn't, 
want to be having sex. (laughs) Um, and which in hindsight is very clear as to why, but I didn't like it. I didn't want to be doing it. And it was incumbent in order to be a good wife and to be faithful to God and also to what my husband wanted that I deny what my body was telling me and what my mind was telling me and what my heart was telling me and that I just do it anyway. And that I just, because what being a good Christian wife is, is again, not like what honoring your body, like honoring your body is not being a good Christian wife. If honoring your body is telling your husband, no, was what my experience in my marriage was, which it turns out is actually just not a good relationship. (laughs) Like I've talked to so many straight people since then who their level of horror at that is extreme. Like, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not, yeah. That, that, that doesn't, <laughs> like you're like, I mean, yeah, there's no, the, excuse me, the orientation of the people involved should not affect the presence of consent mm-hmm. <laughs> or respect or any, any right. such, but yeah, I think that's right. probably the right. biggest, the absolute biggest way that it showed up for me in my, in my marriage, like pretty early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seemed like you were also just processing while well, you were you were uh, newlywed in graduate school, which mm-hmm. which does mirror my my lived experience uh, to to a degree as well. But I would imagine that you that based on the types of things that you were studying, that that led to probably some cognitive dissonance <laughs> and some uh, and some social mismatches or like you know <laughs> lack of you know I don't know were there any my my spouse and I we we got married when I was working full-time and in grad school and mm-hmm. and she was in grad school and I think we were the only married <laughs> a couple in the from the folks that were in in that program yeah there yeah. were there were a handful of married folks in my program who generally were a lot older but mm-hmm. I was by of the folks like among my cohort and then it, like the cohorts the direct cohorts above me I was by far the youngest and the only married one because I was 24 23 I think mm-hmm. yeah I was 23 when I got married and when I started grad school and I was I was the youngest and everyone was just and this was Boston and everyone was like horrified because no like no <laughs> one was married it was like yeah. married the like the 30 year olds in the program were married you know and right. then I was like right. 23 and I was straight it's like some people had got married in their 20s but they were like lesbians you know (laughs) like because you know because gay marriage was legal in Massachusetts and it was like okay they're fine but like you're a straight person from the like why are you so I was definitely a social outlier and I was midwestern and I was a Christian and those three things combined just like really set me apart And I didn't really, but I didn't really bring my ex-husband to grad school events because I just wanted to have fun. Because I was like, oh, I'm married now. That means I get to have fun. Like that, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'd been, I'd just been such a, you know, straight and narrow, good Christian girl. And I was like, oh, I'm married. I actually get to like go to parties now because like I'm not suspect anymore. I really took that wedding ring as permission to let loose a little bit. And mm-hmm. which for me, letting loose was like having a few beers, you know, with <laughs> other grad students. But it also, you know, there are also a lot of queer people in my program. And I was just around a lot of different kinds of folks for the first time in like en masse. And they were great. And I we became friends. 
and I fell in love with one of them pretty quickly. And it was, uh, yeah, grad school changed a lot for me. Yeah. And you speak at length about um, a relationship, or I'm sorry, you write at length (laughs) about a relationship that you had around that time that was both sort of revelatory, but also ultimately unhealthy. Why why was that something that was important for you to to include in in this in this story to to weave into your memoir? I mean, the the yeah. book itself is very vulnerable in lots of ways, and and in ways we didn't even we haven't even addressed in our short time together. But I I do think that that I, I think I as the reader benefited from you sharing that. But I'm curious for you as the writer, why why did you want to in, include that aspect of your story yeah. in in this narrative? Yeah, so I had, um, I was very good friends with one woman in my grad program, and it took me a minute to like a a solid year of being friends to realize that I was just totally in love with her, which sparked the sort of unraveling of my, you know, realizing I was gay and, you know, incumbent mental health crisis, ultimately got divorced, like things with her and I ended really badly. We never were technically in a relationship, but I think it's, I included a chapter about that relationship for a few reasons, in part because I don't know how to think about that part of my life without her, because she was so integral to everything. And it all feels very wrapped up, like the marriage, that emotional affair, for lack of a better word, and how integral it was to my coming out to myself. Like, I don't know that I would have realized I was gay that soon if it hadn't been for me falling for this person. And also I thought it was really important because I think that it complicates the, and also it allows me to take more responsibility for like my end of how things went, like ultimately ended badly in my marriage. Like, obviously there's a lot to do that I talk about with my ex-husband that ultimately ended not great. And some ways that he treated me that were not ideal. And I was also having an emotional affair. And I think that that's really important to say and to include. And so as to not have it be some kind of like one-sided story, you know, that where I'm villainizing him, which is something I would never want to do and imply that I have no blame in this, you know, and, and yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons, but those are a few of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that that's what sets memoirists apart from other people that might be either biographers or especially folks that you know are that that are that are alighting and removing things from from their story. And that's what I respect so much about memoirists is is their willingness to to share those things with with their reader. So, thank you for sharing that. It's because uh, it's a very impactful part of the book to to realize that it wasn't all like sunshine and rainbows after yeah <laughs> after after these things there were still there were still things that that were difficult but were part of the story yeah i will say she used to take up a much in like previous drafts she was a much larger part of the book and that i think that that's part of the benefit of time passing is that mm-hmm. now it's like been almost 10 years and so you know, now writing as opposed to like seven years ago when I started writing, it it felt much easier to contain it to a right. chapter in that way, you know, as opposed to like letting 
this feelings just sprawl everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I want to talk about want to talk a little bit about story in mm-hmm. general and how mm-hmm. um you've studied literature through your through all of your academic work and everything and you talk about discovering comics which i yeah. i love comic books and you know literature and art references to them all sort of litter throughout your book so i'm curious what sort of stories or other parts uh, pieces of art did you feel you were sort of drawn to during these during these periods that you recount in the book that either mirrored your own or gave you that sort of uh, the great thing about fiction is it lets you sort of inhabit these hypothetical spaces, you know, that that don't that don't necessarily have conse- like direct consequences. You can be that potential version of yourself. So, what sort of stories were, did you feel drawn to, or that you, that you felt liberty to explore when you were going through this period where you were starting to ground yourself again? Yeah, I mean, Kate Chopin's The Awakening was so powerful for me to revisit. And I had read it before um, in undergrad, but a friend of mine, but it had been years. And a friend of mine in grad school, Kylie, one of my best friends who I who I talk about in the book very briefly, uh, I remember we were at this restaurant in Cambridge and she said to me, she was like, you're having your own The Awakening except like with a different ending, right? The ending (laughs) of The Awakening is tragic. But that inspired me to go back and reread it kind of in the like at the, we were in the denouement or however you say that word, you know, like of (laughs) of all of this at that time. Like I had, you know, I, I think I was living with Tony at the time and I had left my husband and all of that and filed and whatnot was just in the interminable waiting period because Massachusetts has a waiting period. But, but yeah, I went and reread it and it just, struck me anew and was so potent for me. And there were just some lines from that book, one of which is the epigraph to Heretic that have, that really like kind of became anchors for me during that time of like just starting the healing journey, like about belonging to oneself and about art. And it just was really meaningful. And, and so I, I definitely, and I, I do briefly talk about the awakening in, in Heretic and I, I really wanted to, but it was really important for me to do that because that book was so important during that time. And I was really, and similarly, another piece of art that was really important to me that I have a tattoo of the lyrics of is Emmylou Harris's song, Red Dirt Girl, which is kind of in that similar, I think like Martyrs and Suicide Girls chapter, because these are both like pieces of art, incidentally, about like women who ultimately take their own lives. And I think for me, part of the victory, because I had had a a pretty intense period of suicidal ideation there like at my rock bottom moment like part of the victory of like these like being able to sit with these this novel and then this song for so long was that I I hadn't and was that I was still here and that felt so meaningful and like going to get I remember going to get my tattoo of some of the lyrics to Red Dirt Girl and that just felt like such a victory to be able to to do that and 
and it's a it's just part of the story you know of me now and then there are other pieces of art in the book that um, that I I pair with different personal narrative scenes that that ultimately you know that I came to a lot later because they weren't out at the time. Like Lil Nas X having this beautiful right. Montero album, right? Like we didn't get that until last year. But God, when I heard it, when then I saw it, I was like, this is oh my, like, this is everything. Like why, like, I have to write about this. This is so perfect for self-actualization and for the body and for ex-evangelicals, like coming to just like claim themselves and such. like, it just, yeah. So there are some pieces in the book that are, that were really important for me at the time. And then there are some pieces that, you know, are, are meaningful for me now. Um, but, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, really really wonderful and i i I think you know people have been wrestling with faith for as long as there's been faith so there's actually a lot to draw on and it's really fascinating to see see these sort of cultural artifacts these pieces of work like you know work in people's lives and and see see people like Lil Nas X is one of the most popular i know uh, you know, know popular musicians out there and like super good at the internet <laughs> like so you know, good so just good a little the... fandom boy who is like got cut his teeth on <laughs> fandom and now is like killing oh my god i love him yeah every time he... i see him i'm just like i, I feel like an auntie i'm just so proud of him like i'm so happy <laughs> for him i just want him to get everything he wants yeah like <laughs> you know yeah so he's so so i mean it's fascinating to see these things you know come to these out and in people's works and engage in these things um in a way that that people with our sort of background can really significantly relate to and and whether or not they claim a label for a time or whatever is sort of immaterial if it speaks to that human experience (laughs) absolutely and and to me that's the that's the power of that's the power of art and of language and of of all these things like it's it's wonderful and i like yeah and to to even see it in things like marvel comics like mm-hmm. the i was a little let down by the love and thunder movie just because because of the fact that the first 12 issues of that run with oh. gore the god butcher yeah. if you are some of the most like if you want like a a treatise on theodicy like you read mm-hmm. like you you mm-hmm. read you read that <laughs> yeah and uh then Jason Nern wrote a book called The Goddamned. Uh, anyways, I'm just nerding out on that. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I remember the, I mean, I have like, I haven't been reading comics regularly the last few years, which is really sad to me. But I do remember because I was living in Somerville when the first like, you know, like Lady Thor book came out, not book, mm-hmm. but like volume. And I, I remember getting it and I have at least the first like two or three issues of it. And yeah, like it was just really good. And so I was really excited for Love and Thunder, which I enjoyed for other reasons. But oh, like, it was it was great. I mean, it a, was a delightful that. bit of candy, but not it wasn't a it wasn't a philosophical treatise. Which it so. I mean, it I probably should not have had those expectations, even though <laughs> like Taika Waititi can do a lot and like can do a lot with pop culture and in a lot of ways, Ragnarok was a philosophical treatise, so I don't think we were yeah. wrong to expect <laughs> no. that. R- right. I think as far as like comic book adaptations, 
movie adaptations of comic book stories, I think they just, in order for that to be palatable, like it is a, those first 12 issues are, are brutal. It's literally one guy killing pantheons of gods, like Mm. all across the universe. And then, then challenging Thor's very idea of what it means to be, you know, be a, a good entity as like a, a, it's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating, but that sounds um, really good. But anyways, um, that's that's why I love when these things infect art because again, or or inform art rather, mm-hmm. uh, because they they give us that space to to explore. And yeah. that's I think your book also fits that as well. In that I think there will be many people who pick this up in the coming weeks and months and years and find a bit of their story there. And I think. I'm just very excited that these types of stories continue to make it to market. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, like, yes, it is a, it is a, it is a business. It is an industry, but for it to, for them, for these books to continue to reach shelves is really encouraging. And I'm really glad to have read yours and to have had a chance to read it Thank and you. to talk, to talk through it. Thank you. And I'm so excited for your book. Like, <laughs> truly, we need more of these in the world. And I mean, not to say like, especially with everything that's happening in the country, because like, <laughs> it has been happening, it will continue to happen. But I think yeah. these narratives also really help folks make sense, make folks both from, you know, who grew up in the church or who have been involved in the church, but also help people who are outside of it to make sense of what's happening. And it helps right. give language and perspective to the, just to the framework that informs so much of daily life in America. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can act as interpreters in that regard mm-hmm. or translators, Yeah, which I think is a, a somewhat of an undersung skill. But, a weird uh, kind of missionary in a way. <laughs> like that's right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, Gina, thank you so much for uh spending some time with me to talk about your book and and all sorts of other stuff. Where can people find your book uh and if you have any upcoming recent things in the next few weeks that you want to plug, pl- please feel free to do so. Absolutely. You can find my book on bookshop or at your local bookstore or, you know, even Amazon, really wherever books are sold, wherever is most convenient for you to get your books from or at your local library. Please feel free to to request it. We love librarians. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Gina Catholic. Gina, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Blake. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.